The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. A good warm morning to you, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Despite the best efforts of the weather people on television, the weather continues to be delightfully unpredictable. But there is nothing unpredictable about the literary series or good writing or poetry. It's, a, it's an activity for all seasons. So I welcome you this morning to the final episode of the literary series, Spring 2014. Um, we've had a wonderful um, turnout. The community of the college has supported us most with great interest and enthusiasm. So I thank you and I thank the SMC Associates for making this possible so that now it's routine for us. Uh, the fall semester or the spring semester comes around, we just expect writers to show up on our campus <laughs> on Tuesday or Thursday at 11.15 to share with us their creativity and talent. It just has become routine. But that's only because the SMC Associates continue to fund us. And they do so because you show up every time we organize this event. And so uh, I thank you for your support and urge you to become members of the SMC Associates so that we can continue to bring such programs to the campus. I'm also happy to say um, we welcome Wendy Zala, who is going to help us uh, you know, work with the logistics. Um, you may, some of you may know Judy Naveau, uh, her predecessor has retired. So Wendy Zala has ably succeeded, so I thank you. And uh, people in her office, uh, Ramin and uh, Stephanie and others, who make this possible, as well as the event staff um, who have uh, been here and who are here after us and make sure that everything goes smoothly. So I appreciate all the help that people have provided to make this a success. I'm also happy to announce that uh, uh, this Fall 2014 program is finalized, and so you will be getting information about that in due course, so I hope you will continue to show up. I have a question for you this morning. What kind of a person is a poet, do you think? What kind of a human being is he or she? What qualities would you associate with a poet? Yes, ma'am? He's, uh, he or she is imaginative, okay, fair enough. Uh, other qualities you associate with a poet? Uh, is he or she dangerous, for example? Yeah. Uh, would, not would not run successfully the, the security check at the airport, maybe? Uh, any other ideas about uh, qualities or characteristics of a poet? Would he or she pay taxes regularly? Yes, <laughs> yes go ahead. In power to influence other people. Okay, that sounds dangerous. But anyway, we'll take that. Any other images that you have of a poet? Yes. He or she is inquisitive. Okay, very good. Anything else? Uh, the person uh, sits by a lakeside and uh, tries to come up with images? Or no? Yes, maybe. When I was growing up, I always thought that a poet was some creature from another planet that you couldn't really communicate with, but uh, it's a different species, I thought. So I want to introduce our guest poet, a California poet, 
and I can't do better than his own words. So Charles Hood, um, he's a poet, grew up in Atwater, but now lives on the other side of the mountains on the edge of the Mojave Desert. He has been a dishwasher, a factory worker, a ski instructor, and a nature guide in Africa. Currently, Charles Hood is a research fellow at the Center for Art Plus Environment in Reno and is on faculty at Antelope Valley College. He went to Glendale College, Cal State Northridge, UC Irvine, and the University of Utah, where he dropped out of a PhD program in order to translate poetry in New Guinea. In fact, he dropped out of college nine times, only going back each time when he realized how much most jobs suck. <laughs> he has watched birds. He has taken photographs at the South Pole. He has been to within 600 miles of the North Pole. He has been to Easter Island. And this is a first for almost any poet. He has contracted and survived bubonic plague, which he caught from prairie dogs in Oklahoma. So those of you who wish to be poets, you know what's, uh, what awaits you. But along the way, he has found time and energy and creativity and imagination to write nine books, including Rio de Dios, a survey of the Los Angeles River, and South by South, a book based on his National Science Foundation residency in Antarctica. That book won the Hollis Summers, I'm sorry, Hollis Summers Prize from Ohio University. And I can't but add this line from his own introduction. Charles Hood has never met roadkill he didn't want to pull over and poke. <laughs> Charles Hood. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be at Santa Monica College today, homo KCRW. And I just feel like I want to transfer to UCLA just by being on campus. Suddenly my, my aspirations have been elevated in some type of way. And thank you for the kind introduction. I will say about working for TSA or being going through security and being dangerous, uh, as a tall guy with a beard who often travels alone, I get pulled over every freaking time. Let me tell you, it's not just Arab Americans who go through this. Anybody who deviates, you know, and I've usually got a backpack with me. They, for some reason, they, that always bugs TSA, too. I do have a, a set list tonight. We can deviate it depending on how our mood goes. But usually what happens at poetry readings is the poet tells a little story, reads a poem, tells a story, reads a poem. We, we can do that. But I want to give you the big picture because I actually have a small agenda today. And if you've ever seen Ratatouille, that fabulous cartoon, you know that the book that's the center of that particular narrative is a book called Anyone Can Cook. And my idea is that anybody can write and anybody can write well. And so part of today's kind of arc is going to be trying to reinforce that idea. So we're going to start out with five introductory poems, the first of which is called Who to Kill, followed by Never Shoot a Gun Indoors at the Supermarket, Where the Gangs Went, and All My Poems Hate Me. And then we will do a little transition into talking about writing in voices that are not our own, adopting the voices of others, uh, what is called persona poetry. I'll do a Charles Bukowski poem about uh, getting arrested for sexually assaulting a woman at a supermarket. I'll read a poem in an African-American voice that I wrote for a movie. And we will read, in, in honor of today's weather, we will read a, I will read a poem called Fire Diary, which is in the voice of an arsonist. And I'll talk about why that is later on. And then thinking about arson made me really want to bring to you one of my favorite poems that I hardly ever get to share. It's called The History of Hell. 
H-E-L-L, the history of hell. And then we'll talk a little bit about process. I've got some journal poems, including meeting an insane, psychotic Italian in a storm in the Alps and almost getting arrested by the Israeli police looking for antelope in Jerusalem. We'll do a couple of nature poems, uh, talk about ravens, and then I have a poem called According To, and there's just a blank there. And then this I want you to look forward to with all your hearts. All males die after mating is the title of that, which will take us to some nonfiction called Spanish Lessons, and then we'll go to a rather substantial, I hope, uh, Q&A, and if that doesn't work out, then we'll go back to me. With any luck, I can end on one of my favorite closing poems. My poems are like my children. So I do have a set list, and we'll, we'll see how we're doing on time, if we can get to all that. So who to kill is the first thing I'd like to share. And if you are a good English major, you know the term black humor. And I hope you'll hear this as being an example of black humor and not take it too literally. And for those of you who are from the community and joining us today, there is a small inside joke about the APA, American Psychological Association, versus the MLA, Modern Language Association. And if you're an academic, you'll get the joke. And if you don't get the joke, it's a stupid one. Blow right past it. Who to kill is the title of this. Stalin says to kill the Jews first. No, wait, Hitler's already doing that. Let's kill the dancers. The dancers say to kill anybody who doesn't look fabulous in black tights. The people in black tights say, it's not our fault. And what about the people with goatees and blasted tats from Venice who think they know about, more about indie music than the people in Santa Monica? The people in Santa Monica say to kill the people in Venice because they know about as much about music as just as Stalin does, which is to say, not much. Just as Stalin says, don't kill him, kill Hitler, Mugabe, the military in Egypt, Syria, Vladimir Putin, especially Vladimir Putin, and Pol Pot. Pol Pot says, kill all the teachers last, except from now on, the word Red really means the color blue, and Wednesday is now Friday, and the word last really means do it first. The teachers say to kill anybody who writes a sentence fragment after the third week of class when we've already covered all that. The people who write sentence fragments say kill the people who write run-ons. The paper says to kill the non-erasable pen. The pen says to kill the scissors, the glue stick, and the portable typewriter. The grass says to kill the leafy apple tree that is going around spreading such a ridiculous amount of shade. The apple tree says kill all the apple tree worms. The apple tree worms say to kill all the illegal immigrants, and then the apples will rot on the trees as the apple tree god intended. The apple tree god says, kill all the orange trees. The orange trees say to kill the peach trees, the guava trees, the mango trees, and especially all the Texas grapefruit trees. The Texans want to kill the homosexuals. The homosexuals want to kill the Republican fathers. The fathers want to kill Santa Monica, which is the home of too many poets, blacks, dancers, homosexuals, editors, and teachers. The teachers have changed their minds and now want to kill everybody who will not double space. I mean, how hard can it be, for Christ's sake? Allen Ginsberg says to kill the people who work for the CIA, the ones with very clean underpants, and anybody who does not like Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman says to kill Emily Dickinson, that stuck-up bitch. No, wait, kill anybody who's not vast and does not contain multitudes. No, wait, kill anybody who's never contradicted themselves. The editors say to kill everybody who spells cosmos with a K. The authors say, kill the editors first. The MLA says they would say to kill the APA if words had any meaning, it were not a context-based patriarchal hegemonious construct. The women say to kill the men who call them honey. The men say to kill the women who drive Ford expeditions and have for three years and still can't park within the lines. The lions say to kill the weeds. The weeds say to kill the bees. The bees say to kill anybody who does not have stripes. The convicts who have stripes say kill the wardens. Meanwhile, the teachers have changed their mind, and the teachers say kill the billboards that need apostrophes and do not have them. The billboards want to kill all the pigeons. 
The pigeons want to kill all the people who eat burritos, tacos, caramel corn, french fries, handfuls of peanuts, saltine crackers, and Cheetos, and refuse to spill some on the ground for the rest of us. The rest of us say to kill anybody who's not part of the subset, rest of us. Poets want to kill the people who cannot sit still even for a two-page poem. I'm talking to the people in the back row. The two-page poems say to kill all the three-page poems and also any haiku written after 1700. The haiku says, what is the sound of a frog jumping in a pond after it has been killed with a hammer? Buddha says, careful, do not kill that fly. It is sitting on your hammer. The hammer says, careful, you're sitting on a statue of Buddha, and the Taliban are coming. The Taliban says nothing because God has listened to the prayers of the Baptists, and all the entire population of Afghanistan has been struck mute. The mutes say nothing because they're listening to the beautiful music of a fly weaving a sonata out of the leaves of an apple tree and listening to the last breath of Walt Whitman. Emily Dickinson says, even the last breath of Walt Whitman lasts too long. But that's okay. It is still early. The leaves are still on the trees. And Santa Monica is a pretty cool place to be. A new issue of LA Weekly comes out today. And if you have a Blu-ray DVD player, you can watch Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy six times in a row if you want. And Emily Dickinson says, really, Walt Whitman isn't so bad. And after all, when it comes down to it, we've got all day anyway. Thank you. So the next poem, we, we know this college is about education. Education really kind of takes you new places. So some of you may need this advice. You haven't tried this on your own. Never shoot a gun indoors. And the poem is about that. And it's also something that I did write in a staff meeting. Uh, some people in the room do work as professional academics and as those of you who don't may not appreciate. And entirely too much of our time is spent in very tedious things called meetings where nothing gets done and endless amounts of time gets squandered. So in a tedious meeting where nothing was getting done, I wrote this poem called Never Shoot a Gun Indoors. It has happened again. It's not my fault. Another disaster. Another movie scene following me around like an eager puppy. This time it was at the staff meeting, the light from the west window painting the room a sleepy shade of yellow. When I heard the hoofbeats coming, I said to myself, man, not again, not at four in the afternoon after three sections of developmental English, but it was too late to stop it. And there was, this time there were Saracens and maybe Turks and they came too fast to tell. One riding a huge sorrel horse right through the window. Glass everywhere, his sword bright as chrome. Two more pantaloon berserkers coming through each door as my briefcase spilled open, dumping a webbly pistol in my lap, and I stood on the table, elbows locked, feet in line of my hips, the shots crashing out like car accidents happening over and over. I had to reload twice. There was even a bit of hand-to-hand -hand fighting towards the end. It was hell trying to keep it out of the papers, and none of us could hear right for days, never shoot a gun indoors. But to be honest with you, the window was dirty and had not opened right for years. The department chair's funeral will be next Tuesday. All classes canceled, even though Eva, she's the secretary, she really does all the work and everybody knows it. And none of the rest of us really could stand him anyway. So much for my department chair, now dead in that poem. Uh, here's a story about actually about the department chair I had in mind for that. Uh, I was a writing tutor at Glendale College and a tutor at Cal State Northridge and did these very, I worked in a private school. But I wanted a real college job. I went into grad school, and as some of you may know, when you go to grad school, they hire the incoming graduate class to teach basic English classes. You're called a TA, teaching assistant. And I was kind of scrounging around for work and hanging around the English department the Friday before classes started. And the, the department chair, who I've killed off in that last poem, said, I'm about to cancel classes. You, do you want to teach? 
yes, sir. Yes, sir. I want to teach. That's why I'm hanging around all day. I want to. And so I'm filling out the paperwork and he looked at me and he says, you have taught before, right? Like, absolutely. I taught kindergarten. I taught third grade. Whatever you want. I'm just going to do it. Uh, you have taught before. Here's a poem called At the Supermarket. Now, it refers to something that is no longer extant, but I'm going to read it anyway. So there used to be this fabulous newspaper, oh my gosh, don't I miss it with all my heart, called the Weekly World News. Those of us of a certain generation remember this. This is how you kept up on what Satan was doing and, and the really the, what the UFO action was all like. Uh, and it had uh, a very delicious black and white print edition with these scandalous headlines. Uh, and it is no longer extant, but let's just assume that it is for the sake of this poem. So it's called At the Supermarket. Hillary Clinton has been cheating on Bill with a space alien. The face of Satan leers through a Nebraskan ice storm. I can lose 10 pounds in 10 days just by eating candy, watching TV. My left hand doesn't know what my right hand is. I watch one of my arms reach out, stop that, and casually slide a weekly world news next to my bag of wine, dark plums, and a six-pack of Bud Light. In horror, I tell my hand, put that back this instant. What if the neighbor should see me? What would Bill Shakespeare say? Relax, says the bad hand. If Shakespeare were here, he'd say to be sure to buy the star, too, because some biker guy just had Tom Cruise's baby. <laughs> Beethoven wants to know about the man so fat he needs a crane to move from room to room while Chekhov is partial to bat babies. <laughs> Blind Milton wants to hear his horoscope. Hemingway urgently needs to learn how Castro trained squadrons of sharks to attack the beaches of Florida, plus insists I should have gotten two six-packs, not one. The good hand hands the quirk a 20, refuses to buy Walt Whitman any more chewing gum, wants paper, not plastic. Dibs on shotgun, Sappho shouts, while Mark Twain, outside the store at last, lights a cheroot. Did you see the rack on that gal behind us? She should apply for a job at Hooters. Emily Dickinson is silent, looks like she's waiting for a bus, and it's not ours. Tolstoy is pushing Freud full speed around the parking lot in a shopping cart, both of them whooping like fire trucks. Dickinson is interviewing the Saldoreno man who sells overstuffed pillows while I honk and honk. Jack Kerouac glances up from the diet ads. Hey, relax, big daddy. Be happy. Check this out. It's a pumpkin big as a cow. What a gas. How can you ever be unhappy knowing that right this very minute there's a pumpkin growing in somebody's field? A pumpkin as orange and round and perfect as a Union 76 sign. What a crazy cool world this is, daddy-o. And don't you forget it. Don't you ever, ever forget it. Okay, everybody's back. Now shut up and take us home. So that was called, that's the supermarket. And we're going to come back to that idea in just a moment when we come around to Bukowski, because I actually stole one line there from the late great alcoholic misogynist Charles Bukowski, buried in San Pedro under a headstone that says, Don't Try, the poet Charles Bukowski. So it's a pugilist, it's a man with a fist, and then his name, and, it, and then a big bold thing on his bronze uh, plaque on his grave, Don't Try. Now whether it means don't try to beat death, or don't try to write as well as him, or don't try to outright Tolstoy, I don't, I, nobody knows what it means, but nonetheless... For those of you looking for headstones to give to people uh, as a gift, uh, that might be a model. Uh, the next poem is called Where the Gangs Went. I grew up in East L.A. Uh, Atwater is a nice way to say it. Uh, actually, I would say I grew up in Frogtown on the edge of White Fence and Tunerville is kind of how my experience of it was. And I like to keep up on the gangs, even though there aren't quite as many where I live now out in the desert. So this is a survey of current gangs of Los Angeles only with my projected future tense sense of where we should go as a culture, where we could go as a culture. So it is referring to the gang's past tense, but the narrative takes place in the slightly immediate future, just a few, maybe just a few hours from now, just a few days from now, we don't know, where the gangs went. 
This was uh, written on commission by Red Hand Press, and it's in an anthology of poetry to, that's used in teaching poetry to people in secondary schools for a poetry in the schools program. That's another reason I stuck to the gang theme, uh, since it is being used in East LA as a, as a textbook. Offer some hope to our younger siblings. Where the Gangs Went is the title of this. After the earthquake, it was different. Zebras grazed the hillside at the zoo, would not go back in their pens. Jersey Shore went off the air, nobody noticed. Wild avocado trees grew up fully formed around MacArthur Park, so many that even LA Cathedral became known for its guacamole. Koreatown's menudo was better than Glendale's. Two days after Christmas, there was a cold snap. All of the Los Angeles River froze solid. A morning, even the mayor was seen ice skating to work, stopping here and there at the bonfires of the homeless people to share hot cocoa and hand around oranges he had bought from the guy by the freeway. In Compton, it wasn't cold, but hot, hot like Hawaii, orchids growing like weeds along the cracks in the fences. You could tell the Ghost Street Crips from the Hoover Crips by the new kind of orchid, blue as coral lagoons they wore in their hair. All the bounty hunters began singing church music one morning, couldn't stop, driving around with the windows down, singing like choir boys, harmonizing better than the ten-line crips, who are more about spontaneous crump dancing. In Venice, the sons of Samoa surf like 14-year-old white kids, catching crazy backside air and inventing a new kind of board wax made from honeysuckle and fossil tree amber. Peacocks were taken for rides on fire trucks. Cops taught the nuns magic tricks and wore white gloves and top hats, even off-duty. Officers from Hollenbeck played soccer against the Tijuana Locos and won. Pacoima Piru opened a farm for horses too old to run at Santa Anita, gave rides to horses, excuse me, gave rides to kids, excuse me, started breeding swans, so the abuelas, having picnics at Hanson Dam, would have something to feed bits of bread. Most people went to work by hot air balloon, but some rode horses. Some rode on the wagon towed by elephants just because they liked waving to the jugglers and the inline skaters. They knew that parrots had not always been more common than pigeons. They're not sure. It became sort of hazy. What had it been like before? Maybe there always had been waterfalls splashing down the hillsides by Dodger Stadium, grottos of ferns and bank wobbies, 400 flamingos lined up like pink stilts in Compton Creek. Was there a time cars did not come with free pianos? You could tell the middle schools from the high schools just because each used a different kind of fireworks at the end of the day with triple sets on Fridays. It must always have been like this, people said. How could it ever have been different? And they laughed, assuring themselves that memories of the other life could not be true. Those were just ghost stories used to frighten the children. And they touched one another on the shoulder, smiling like the doors of the cages left, often so left open so long. Nothing could ever close them again. So that was called Where the Gangs Went. And it's one of a sequence of poems I've been writing about kind of a future of Los Angeles. And I'd like to pair it with another poem now that comes also from the Poetry for the Schools project from Redhead Press. And this next one, I have to confess, was written for younger people than we are in this room, but nonetheless, it pleases me partly because it is so utterly, completely honest. One of my jobs was to work at an elementary school when I was in college, and this is based on some of the things I learned from the students at Logan Elementary in Echo Park. I usually worked a morning job. I went to college in the afternoon, then I worked a night job, typically, most of my undergraduate years, more or less. Sometimes three jobs, then I was a writing tutor or something during the day. 
So this is based on something I picked up in elementary school, but it's actually about the truest thing I can share with you today about the lovely pleasures of writing, and it's called All My Poems Hate Me. And a different version appeared in a book from Midhand Press. This is kind of my rewrite more recently. All My Poems Hate Me. Oh, this is also on a billboard on Figueroa in Highland Park right now outside a bakery. They have a, Los Angeles City has a poetry in the community project and poems were put on posters and then those posters were hosted by community members. So there is a panaderia uh, in Highland Park that has this poem on its window and then all the poets involved in the project did this sort of mass protest happening thing where we went up and down the streets reading our poetry in front of each business and then the owners came out and had their pictures and put on Facebook. And it was actually kind of cool and fun I have to say. Uh, and they gave me a poster to take home too, so it's in my office at work. All my poems hate me. And perhaps you feel this way, if not about poetry, then about your fiction. If not about your fiction, perhaps about your essays. All my poems hate me. I write poems, but they never come out right. Once I tried to make triple frosted poetry cupcakes, but all I got was a tray of burned up little nothings, like a pan filled with 12 tiny black tennis balls. Another time I had a perfect poem in my head. It was crazy good. It was as good as flying an airplane in blue and gold brewing colors upside down at halftime over a USC game at the half, the Rose Bowl. But then I went to write it down and the words were all whack and stupid as if the paper were drunk and had stopped listening. Another one of my poems always used to wave at me from the other side of the window like I was a fish in an aquarium and it had a shaker of food and it was not about to give me one speck. One of my poems became friends with my best friend, and they all went to Disneyland without me. One poem caught on fire. Sometimes I lose my poems. Once one of my poems emailed me, but Windows crashed, and that was the end of that. I had a really good poem finished, but then I traded it for an iPod that didn't even work. This poem can't even remember five times five. Two of my poems stole from Target and got arrested. One of my poems got throw up on my favorite pants. And nobody ever calls to put my poems on TV. I've got a poem going right now, and that might, it might be okay, you never know. It has dinosaurs in it, a diamond ring, Jesus, Kobe Bryant, and six kinds of ice cream. I'm writing it on my shoe so I don't forget the words, and so when I walk in puddles or across rainy cement, I can leave a little part of my poem pressed down into all the sidewalks of the world. So it says in there that no one ever calls to put my poetry on TV. It actually isn't true. I actually got to be on a program called pit bulls and parolees, and wherein uh, people, when they leave the penitentiary, they apply for this program, and if they qualify, they get to take care of dogs for this pit bull rescue, and then they get to have a dream fulfilled. And one of the gentlemen in the program, his dream was to study poetry with a poet, and so the TV people found me, however they had found me. And it's interesting watching real, reality TV be reality TV, because they made sure we didn't actually meet. It was truly spontaneous, but at the same time, I think they had kind of coded their script for me, you know, of what they wanted, and they certainly edited it afterwards in their own, in their own fashion, pitbulls and parolees. And so after he wanted to meet a poet, he actually wanted to go to college, so we got him kind of a fast-track admission into my into my program. So do I list that on my resume? I've been on TV. I was also on uh, KCAT talking about trees. Uh, I, I wrote a, a chapter about trees of Los Angeles recently, and so if you want to know about the, about the trees on campus, talk to me afterwards. I could probably identify most of them and tell you where in the world they came from, which is to say none of them came from, from around here, with the exception that eucalyptus sort of are centered around Santa Monica historically, but I mean, of course, they came from, from Australia. 
I'd like to talk a little bit about not using our own voice to use our voices. How, do we, how does a writer find his or her own style, his or her own voice? And one way to find our voice is to try on the voices of others. Uh, we certainly learned to do this from the Victorians, Robert Browning's kind of soliloquies in the voice of other people, and that influenced a man named Charles, excuse me, Charles Olson, but uh, before Charles Olson, uh, Ezra Pound, one of the early modernists uh, who was trying to do things in various voices, different languages. So I'm hoping that the poem I share with you is a work of fiction in the voice of a hypothetical creepy guy. It is a poem by Charles Bukowski. I'd like to think he never actually did this himself. And one of the fun things about this poem is he's imagining all things that could go wrong if he were to give in to his id inside the supermarket. And he watches his hand do something. And that's where I stole the line from in my earlier poem. So this is by the late great misogynist poet Charles Bukowski, who made so much money off his poetry from the German translations that he bought a BMW cash on the, on the dollar. He always said he would drive German cars because the Germans were paying for them. Uh, apparently his poetry works really well in, in German, but uh, my German is so poor I can't really verify that. This is called Frozen Food Section by the Los Angeles beat poet Charles Bukowski. You may know him from the movie Barfly. Um, He's perennially popular, even if his lines are rather poorly crafted at times, I have to say. And even his politics are rather repugnant. Nonetheless, the perennial is popular, Charles Bukowski, in what I hope is a work of fiction called Frozen Food Section. Third person, so he's watching this character, he. He had been fighting it for years, that thing about women in supermarkets bending over or just pushing their carts along. He felt like grabbing a buttock and squeezing, hardly a sexual thing, more like a weird joke, just something else to do besides the ordinary, more in camaraderie than desire. He didn't know why his mind worked this way, and he realized that one of the niceties of civilization was the right to unmolested privacy. But there he was, rolling along, and he passed a lady bending over in the frozen food section. She wasn't even all that attractive. Her cheeks sagged beneath a loose house dress, and he saw his hand go out. There it goes, he thought. And the hand grabbed one of the buttocks and squeezed and then let go. It had felt like an old beach ball, underinflated and soft. And he looked back and he smiled and waved. And the lady screamed. It was the scream of one being murdered. And just after a tick of a second, she stopped and yelled, That son of a bitch assaulted me! And she pointed the deathly finger attached at the end of her trembling right arm at him. That man just grabbed my ass! He saw a fat man in yellow sweater and orange walking shorts running toward him. The fat man's face was florid with indignation. The fat man circled him and got an arm lock on him from behind, jammed his shoulder up into his neck, yelling, What's the matter with you, buddy? The fat man had the most terrible case of body odor. It was worse than the pain in his arm. And out of nowhere, a cop arrived, and he heard the handcuffs click behind him, and then the vicious grip of the cuffs and a rap behind the ear. He was dragged through the supermarket and then outside. It was early evening going on to night, and he was shoved into the back of the police car. The faces of the crowd looked in at him, and then the cop in front spoke in the radio, and the red lights whirled, and he remembered the last thing his wife had said. Don't forget the paprika. I know you're going to forget the paprika. So one of my friends writes movies, and he had a movie that was set in a poetry slam, uh, a poetry slam that took place at a coffee shop, you know, like a Starbucks kind of thing, you know, not a, not a Denny's. And in the course of the movie, different people would perform and they'd come and be, do dramatic scenes. And it was, a, it was a regular narrative feature, dramatic feature. And they needed then the different poets to, to 
poetry for the poets to perform in the movie. And what they, they had a call for submissions. And, and they, what they didn't have was a strong first-person point of view, I voice poem in the voice of a young African-American man. And they were on deadline. You know how these independent movies are. They had like you know, two credit cards. They were about to get maxed out. They had to make the movie right away. So they asked me, would I write the poem for the African-American poet to read at the poetry slam in the movie? So that's called Coffee. I'm going to read it now. And there's two fun things about it. Number one, uh, it was the only poem out of the whole movie that got mentioned in Daily Variety in the review. So I took a little, that's another thing I should have put that on my, my resume. I was mentioned in Daily Variety once for an otherwise rather mediocre movie. Uh, and the other cool thing was the actor who got to play the role of the uh, black poet was one of my former students who had come up out of the developmental English program on into college English and then gone on. And so I felt really honored that uh, I could watch him uh, succeed in his, the start of his acting career. So this is in the voice uh, of an African-American fellow. It mentions a movie called Bird, which you may not know, the Charlie Parker story was a Queen Eastwood project from some years ago. Also mentions Charlie Parker, of course, the jazz great. And it is an I voice poem, so I'll ask you to then indulge me as I share this language with you, which I think is heartfelt and I hope isn't perceived as in some way being derogatory. I know who I am. I know who I am. Do you know who you are? Do you know how, where, when, of whom we assume, pay debts and resume, just who, what, how in the hell, who in the Zen when you are? Pick up that cup in front of you, perfect and hot. I am the coffee, and I am the cup, and I am the God who made the dirt and grew the tree that held the tire that you swung in when you were five years old and in love with the blurring magic of your own dizziness. You want more coffee? Oh, I'll give you coffee. Hot java black lava, thicker than witch's blood, blacker than the shovel your dad used to kill the cat hit by the car, driven by the man from around the block who could afford the colored maid, whose skin was the color of fresh coffee, which is the color I am, which is man color. I am the maid, and I am the white man, and I am the half-caste baby, the color of the lynch mob's rope. I am you, all of you, and I am five years old, swinging under a tree while my dad drinks black coffee and listens to the wildcat sax of Charlie freaking Parker. And the world swings faster and faster with every turn past the needle. I am the sound inside the sax. I am the pain inside the tattoo. I am the one who was behind you the first time you saw Clint Eastwood's movie Bird and then stayed up all night afterwards, 18 years old and ready to eat the world up in five red bites. I am that young, wide mouth. I am the white and black piano key rowboards of your teeth. I am your lip and your tongue, the dropped cup and the broken promise. I am all that you want to be, can be, and will be. So that's called Coffee. It was in an independent movie called Versus. Originally, it was going to be called Slam, and unfortunately, another movie called Slam beat them to release, so they had to change it at the last minute. B-E-R-S-E-S, -E -S, as in the stanzas of the poem, although the, the sense of man versus machine is in there as well. My African-American poem. I guess I get to read that, but I always feel a little bit of white guilt every time I do so. So it's hot. You notice this. Uh, I have to say, it's actually hotter here than it is in the desert. I drove out from my desert home this morning, and it was 72 when I left. Uh, you'll actually have a higher height than we will this afternoon, um, just the way the uh, Santa Ana's are working. So it's hot, and there's fires, and so we are going to be sympathetic. 
we will be sympathetic to the firemen, but also to the people that set the fires. One of the professors I studied with at UC Irvine, Robert Peters, used to write persona poems himself, and he would go into the minds of rather negative characters, so serial murderers back before they became TV stars, and sexual deviants, and, and he just always felt like there should be nothing off limits to poetry. Literature should be able to talk about the dark as well as the light. When people would complain, you know, why do you do these voice poems in the voice of a serial murderer or something? An entire book in the, in the case of that topic. And he always said, no, literature can't shy away from it. We need to inhabit their space to understand what their role is in society, what they want to give back to us, what they want to take from us. So in that idea of being generous to those whose mental illnesses uh, perhaps torment even them, I wrote a poem in the voice of an arsonist. And I guess I should always have the disclaimer. Maybe I should have the t-shirt right now. I am not an arsonist. Uh, although maybe I am because I can read this with such sincerity. I don't know. Uh, this was commissioned for a literary journal called The Crunch, named after a very, very, very obscure Led Zeppelin song. So it is a first-person point of view poem. I did write it to experiment with being in a different psychology than my usual one, or I hope it my usual one. Uh, but it's also a very California poem to my mind. We think about some of the salient points of California, uh, maybe not so much palm trees as the way that fire shapes our ecology, shapes our consciousness, dominates our fears. We have many more fires than we have earthquakes. And most of us have probably seen more forest fires than we actually have seen movie stars, uh, at least in person. I don't know, maybe it's 50-50 on that. Here in Santa Monica, we're a little closer to the movie star kind of thing. Uh, saw Spike Lee this week at, at uh, doing a commercial at, at Union Station. I guess we know not to be like, if you see a movie star, oh, well, you know, not like I'm going to look or anything because I'm way too cool. I'm not going to bug them. I'm not even going to look twice. Another movie star, oh, the Third Street Promenade, forget it. I'm not even going to look. We all know, we all know the, the, but I have my list. I know not to look, but if you ask me how many movie stars have I met, like I met Roger Dangerfield coming out of an elevator when I was going in, like, oh, I've got my, how many have I seen at like 10 feet? How many have I, you know, been close enough to touch? And then I just sort of ignore them because I'm so cool. We have our lists. All right, so this is called Fire Diary, and I hope it feels topical to us. Alone in its coffin of darkness, an unlit match is a seed. Sooner or later, if you live in Los Angeles long enough, you'll meet a famous person, you'll have a rich friend. You'll live to see every hill burn. A match, when it's struck, that smell. Fire trucks rolling out of their bunkers. Minutemen dashing to the alarm always make me think they should have union jacks flying behind each engine. Fire remains medieval, water needed against it, the cycles of ash and rebirth, the axes, poles, trenches, bands of men and helmets set in action at my command. Guns, ineffectual, petty, common, a match does more than a gun. In the television interview, smoke had tarnished his face, leaving just his eyes, delicate bubbles ready to burst. I've always liked red things. Fire trucks, helicopters, rivers of smoke as the dust deepens and the wind is not let up. Christ speaks to us in red. Inside of the crew chief's altimeter, the bearings are made from synthetic rubies with no lubricants, which allows for greater accuracy. Open one up, and it is a bed of red mouse bones, each one a vivid ember, ember rolls of little jewels just the size of periods and colons, punctuating a city of red. They were interviewing the survivors. I could tell he was some nut. Yes, he said, looking right at the camera. I lit the fires, but it's okay. I'm Sir, Sir Christopher Wren. I can build it all again. Oh, the papers called it a hundred-year fire. There's no ambition there. 
you know, not when they're busy, but on regular days, like when they drive past me on the freeway, I like to watch firemen, admire how they want nothing to do with the world, how even just riding in their truck they wear a thick suit, clap down hearing baffles, immense lug-bottom boots, how they ride parade float high on trucks painted the red that defines red. They are separated from the world better than presidents or hermits, immune, riding through traffic just like a lord on his palanquin. It makes you want to say, world, go away, you don't exist, I am a fireman. Of course, you have to crack the altimeter open to see the ruby beauty. At night, I was driving, and there was a fire. I'd had the radio off, so I didn't know it was there, and it just come up to it by accident. And there it was, a huge fire running along both sides of the freeway, the hills black, the sky a different kind of black, the smoke glowing orange and pillars of pure color, and then the fire turned in wide rows of lava intensity, a color you can't name, a color that is just fire color, so vivid against the black hillside, so beautiful that color was, the color of the night fire to the opera canopy of smoke, so beautiful, still beautiful, even as it killed the deer and the owl's clover and the wall-to-wall champagne-colored goodnight honey sleepwell carpeting of those damn cul-de-sac housing tracks. Death by fire is the city's image of itself. The first time I heard the word, I was a kid. Maybe it's a hunger fire. I don't remember. But they were so passionate on the news. I didn't know. I thought they were saying it was started by our son. Our son. To be alive is not the same as to own. People confuse possession with life. Call it fuel load. Every sprawl of March blooming chemise, every red twisted stick of manzanita is an open bowl of gasoline waiting to explode. Eucalyptus is best. So much natural oil, they go up all at once like a butane geyser. Nature wants to burn. Nature needs to burn. But without the wind, without the Santa Anas, little happens. There is no our sun without God's help. So they're calling it a hundred-year fire. And now the wind is flying through the canyons, tearing trees apart and sending trash cans into the ocean. Only fire can be bigger than the wind. Simon says, yes. Simon says, touch your toes. Simon says, yes, be a brush fire. Simon says, reach up tall, really stretch. Fingers poking the sky like they haven't for a hundred years. Everything is out of control always. But in fires, you see it. The chaos is visible even to morons. Nobody can do a damn thing about it. Simon says, this is a firestorm and let the wall of flames be 100 feet tall. Simon says, be a waterfall in reverse. One flowing from down to up, made out of fire, orange fire, lava fire, tornado of fire, rolling up out of the firefall. The sound of it fills the sky, fills everything. A roaring amplified beyond endurance. Simon says, next, step on the fire truck like ants, then pop the roofs of the houses open like you're opening soda cans one after the other. Burn the wedding rings and the photo albums first. The houses are rotten teeth. Simon says, pull them, then cauterize the stumps. Let the wind's name for the mother of the mother of Jesus carry the ashes over the sea all the way to Catalina. The whole city talking in sirens, even places far from the fire lines. Listen. The wind says that the fire says that if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire upon his head. I watched as the firemen started fires, backfires to burning against the burning, gloved hands dropping flares over the chaparral, lines of men sent by leaders to draw geometry on the topo map with a drip torch. Only the archaic and the pure still use matches. Below the floor of the furnace, insulated, isolated, escorted by an angel, 
dormant deep in the safe soil are the seeds of the wildflowers that will turn the hills inside out in spring. A hundred-year spring waits in the bones of the roots of the water mains and gas lines, waits to be watered by tanker drops, coils of six-inch hose, waits for its chance to flare in a sizzle of light like a matches. The brush will grow, flourish, shelter rattlesnakes die, and in another day, burn. Yet the news turns the fire into a story, finds a person to be the hero, makes the start an act of Judas, pities the kittens and chrysanthemums, calls tragic the loss of a few sheds and tasteless stucco castles. Nothing is said of the wetbacks displaced with no dishes to wash. Nothing is said of the tax evasion cases pending against the castles away on vacation owners. Weather, sports, who went to whose party, you will not hear about the new deaths of the ancient poor stabbed behind 7-Eleven or overdose trying to shoot fire into their own limbs not even on the last page of the paper. Fire, like waves, always changes, always invents a new shape, one second to the next. You can look at flames longer than you can look at anything else. And that concludes my arson poem. And what we're going to do, we're going to Q&A pretty soon. I'm just going to mix this up a little bit. So here's my, my other pitch here. Besides the fact that any of us can write, and write well if we want to, I think you should keep a journal, and I think you should keep it all the time. Uh, you should keep it with you every day. Keep it at night. You should have one in your car. You should have one in your handbag. You should have one under the bed. And this particular one that I'm flipping through now is on its way to an art museum collection. They have dibs on it once I finish my residency. And rank, frankly, I think God gives me so few ideas, I'd be really ungrateful not to write them down when I get them. I certainly know if I don't write them down on the spot, I'm not going to have them later. So I do keep smaller paper-bound journals in my handbag. I always have something with me at any time. And then these larger ones that I usually do at night or during staff meetings or poetry readings like this when I'm a little bit bored uh, can, can generate some new kinds of language. On this side it says, uh, the nature of women, uh, bitter, positive, a permanently open window, and, and other kind of found poems. That These may end up in a, in a longer text or an essay. It says, how to get more done. And the, and the stack of papers is sinking like the Titanic and the smoke's coming up from the, I feel like I never can get enough done on a given day. And I wrote some sample poems for, a, for one of my books that I'm working on. Then I've written no, 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 no. They all, I hated them a week later. They didn't work at all. It was an elaborate table of contents. I was trying to join one manuscript with another and about space in the desert. And it was a complete disaster. I have a fashion photograph in here with lots of snarky things about people that don't wear socks with their shoes. Uh, my, someone gave me the Laker Girls signed poster. And so this is just a way of keeping track of my day. I do about one of these every two days, I, I, you know, double page spread. My notes for a poem, things that have happened, receipts. I'm sure some of the things that I saw on campus today will end up in there uh, tonight at some point. So I'm recommending that. And I'd like to read something that comes out of the journal uh, process and Hopefully, it will demonstrate the value of just writing things down when they come to us. We're going to skip the history of hell. Uh, if you'd like to know the history of hell, it's actually quite interesting. I'll be glad to talk to you afterwards. This is a short prose piece. It's just straight transcription from a, from a diary that I wrote uh, after the event. Uh, I won a $500 poetry prize. And this doesn't happen much, but, I, but once in a while, you get a little money. And I said to go to Spain. It wasn't quite enough money, but it was an excuse. I was just gonna. I was teaching. It was a regular semester, and I decided, you know, forgive my language. F it. I'm, I'm gonna go to Madrid, and so I actually went to Lonely Planet at Borders. Back when before there was Bonjour Noble, there was Borders, and I went to Lonely Planet, got a book on Spain, and 
booked a flight the next day for my $500. So while I was in Spain, I started looking at, uh, I went to go look at, at the Guggenheim in, in uh, Bilbao, Spain, the, the great architecture. And I went to go see the Prado, of course, see all the Goyas. But I also went to go see animals. Uh, because one of the unfortunate aspects of my life right now is I am competitive on my wild animal lists. There are people that go bird watching and they keep lists of their birds, as you may or may not know. And as you may or may not know, Los Angeles is actually a fabulous place for bird watching. Whenever they do a competition nationwide, you know, how many birds can you see in a day, that kind of thing. LA actually ranks very, very highly, if you, which might surprise you. And there are people that keep track of all the birds they've seen, including uh, me. So my bird list is in the 5,000s, which makes me, oh, you know, I'm in the top 100, 200, but I'm not that big of a deal on the birds. But oh, the mammals. For some reason, I got hooked on seeing all the animals in the world. And first of all, this is expensive. Second of all, it's stupid. Third of all, it's very unpleasant. You have to get up in the middle of the night, go out with a flashlight in all these hideous places. Um, so I have a story about going to see an animal when I was in Spain uh, alone in my little rental car. And of course, I was teaching. I had to get back to, you know, I had to get the flight home to Los Angeles. I couldn't just stay in, I mean, not, not like some hippie just drifting around from experience to experience. I actually had to come back and be a dad and, and teach. So I only had a day to go look for a particular animal. Italian in the Snow is the title of this. An Italian, as in the person, Italian in the Snow. An Italian in the Snow who looked like Max Van Sydow in the movie version of Steppenwolf stopped me in a hailstorm. Late autumn, we were in the Sierra de Grados in Spain. Only 6,500 feet tall, but the first winter storm of the season had freight trained in with gale-bad winds and flapping curtains of ice. His face matched the scene, close-cropped gray hair, trim beard, round glasses, black Gore-Tex rain suit, climber's worn rucksack. The Italian was coming down as I was going up, and we met at a tarn, T-A-R-N, tarn, wild granite walls sweeping around us, rain, sleet, hail, a storm had hit. Only a fool would carry on, wind so strong he had to lean into it to stay upright. But this is where the ibex lived, this particular mountain. They were already extinct in the Pyrenees. The last one killed in 2002 when a tree fell on it. But here in Sierra de Gritos, Spanish ibex were still present. A new mammal for my list. And as luck would turn, there was a storm predicted for the whole weekend, my final days in Spain. Knowing that, meaning knowing the weather, trying to beat the advancing front, I had rushed here from Segovia, rented a room in a pine plank lodge, thrown on my storm gear, and was stripped down pack, was trying to make it up to the ibex part of the mountains and back again before dark. The ranger at the visitor center had said I wouldn't make it, but with no vacation days left, I had to try. After all, it was a new animal for my list, an endemic one at that. I had to try. When I pulled into the trailhead, Rock Petronia as a kind of alpine sparrow, flew over to me immediately, hiding in the lee of my rental car's tires. Why you wanted nothing to do with this storm. Two more beards, uh, two more birds, Alpine weed eaters this time shot past downwind fast as bullets. Clouds would pull down to eye level, then would swirl up, revealing cairns and lichens and rocky hillsides. Trying to beat nightfall, I hiked, jogged up the laid stone trail, part of an old Roman road at first, then crossed a ridge and dropped into a little cirque with a tarn and tussock grass and a peat bog's black stream. Cold, cold wind, clouds, gray stones, squadrons of alpine crows called chuffs, a stray violet flower trying to grow. I've forgotten my gloves. My hands are too cold to hold the binoculars steady. And then I met the Italian. He was a manic Steppenwolf, delighted to run into me. We talked back and forth in Spanish, French, Italian, English. Had, I, had he seen any Ibex? Oh, no, impossible. Look at this weather. He loved that I had asked. Hilarious. What a grand joke life was. Seen any Ibex? Of course not. Only fools be out in weather like this. I was a fool. He was a fool. What a mad, grand, impossible joke. He told me about where the trail ended in a few miles at the shore of a glacial lake. It was a popular destination. 
especially on summer weekends, hundreds of people hiked to this lake for the view, even to swim. He had just been there, was coming back down before dark. Did I know how he knew that he was there, he asked me. Did I know how he knew that he had arrived at the lake? I did not, he explained. It was such a whiteout up there on the mountain. He knew he was at the lake when the waves began washing over the toes of his boots. You couldn't see a thing. You knew you were there when the waves washed over your boots out of the fog. This storm was impossible. He would probably die before he got back to the trailhead. I would probably die on this mountain, too. We would all die. Grand fun. He was happy to have met me. Somebody who shared his sense of life, shared his sense of possibility. He seemed almost reluctant to leave, as if perhaps he might turn around and go back with me and go onto the high mountains yet again so we could die together. What a grand fun that could be. We wished one another safe voyages. Vaya con Dios, he said. God be with you, American fool. God be with you. Shaking my hand with both of his and leaning in close as if trying to remember my face so that when we met later in heaven, he would know which corpse was mine. So that's just transcribed right out of my diary. And I have to tell you, if I hadn't written it down, I would have forgotten all of that. We're going to go to Q&A after one more piece. And this piece also is a diary piece. And it has two animals in it that I want to share, show and tell. So this is called a hoopo, H-O-O-P-O-E, like Poe, like, like Edgar Allan Poe, hoopo, and named after its call. And aren't they cool? They have them in Europe and in, in the Middle East. Uh, they do get into India, actually, all through the old world, but primarily European bird. And as you can see, when they fly, they have these great wings, and they hop around on the ground eating bugs and lizards and small snakes and things, and hoopo. And I just love them. I just think every time I see one, it's like a gift from, from the heavens. And then this little diary piece I want to read is about this animal right here. It is the gazelle from the Bible, if you know the Song of Solomons. Uh, this is the animal of the Old Testament that is demonstrating fleetness and beauty and, and, and uh, kind of a glimpse of what heaven will be like. It'll be kind of like dancing along like a gazelle. So I told you I keep an animal list. I'm, I'm probably maybe number 15 in the world, number 10 in the world on my animal list right now. So I wanted to see one of these. I was in Jerusalem trying to write a book that I still can't write called Melville in the Holy Land. Herman Melville, after he wrote Moby Dick and after he beat up his wife, apparently, which we're not quite sure about, uh, they, the family wanted to get rid of him. So they sent him off to the Holy Land on a little pilgrimage. And he walked around going to leper colonies and cemeteries and having a miserable time. And while he was there, he, he went to Jerusalem. And I've been trying to recreate his, his path. I went to Istanbul and, and Jordan, some of the places he was at, trying to write this book called Melville in the Holy Land. And it's a disaster, and I won't bore you with how bad that book is going. Uh, but I have had some fun times uh, going in his footsteps. So I was in Jerusalem doing my tourist stuff. I wanted to see you know, where Jesus died and all the things one does in Jerusalem and, and be respectful of the, the religious traditions. And then one night with jet lag, I couldn't sleep. And I was trying to think, well, you know, in the morning, should I go back into old city Jerusalem and do some photography and, and kind of do maybe go to a church and do a little praying? Should I do some more Melville stuff? Or maybe I could go see the gazelle. This is about 1 in the morning. I'm trying to say, do I want to get up and see this gazelle or not? I'm going to have to decide by around 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m. I kind of have to make a decision about the gazelle. So this is also taken from my diary. And it's just actually an email to my wife that I cut and pasted into my diary. So it's the story of the gazelle in Israel. And then we'll go to Q&A. And it hasn't become a poem yet or a, a piece of travel fiction, but it may, it, it should, it eventually will. So I had been up a few hours last night, I said in my email, since the middle of the night onwards, and then decided, shoot, dang, it's 5 a.m. I'm going to have to try for those damn gazelles after all, I guess. According to the report on the mammal-watching website, there had once been a herd of 40 wild gazelles in central Jerusalem, in this sort of arroyo between the freeways, but they got hit by cars a lot. 40 became 20, 20 became 10. Apparently some jerkwad trained his attack dog to chase them down and kill them. The last information I had was four years ago. There were a few of these gazelles left still. 
You had to climb under a fence. That's one of the directions I had. You had to climb under the fence. It was often such and such a district. Now, I didn't have an address. It's not a formal nature reserve, so I didn't have a website. I get to Israel. I'm at the hotel. I check in, and the clerk, just by, by chance at the front desk, says, oh, I know where the gazelles are. I live over by there. My apartment's near there. She says, oh, the, you never see the gazelles, but I know where it is. And so she drew me on a map where the gazelle valley was. Now, that was great. I thought, that's pretty good. Of course, it's too far really to walk there from the, from the hotel. It's too many miles away. And all the sources had said, you have to, if you're going to see the gazelles, you want to get there just before first light. You want to be there before sunrise. Um, and I'm thinking, well, you know, if I try for it, it's always miles away, and I get there before sunrise. I wait around a couple hours to come back. I'm going to miss breakfast at the hotel. That's a good breakfast. You know, I'm not thinking, you know, I'm going to miss the cool of the day, which is so nice to be out. Like, I'm not, th this gazelle thing, it really seems stupid. But I've been up all night, and I'm trying to decide, you know, and I'm just getting kind of sleepy. About 5 in the morning, I, you know, if I just kind of chill out here, my brain will cut down. I'm just going to fall asleep. This will be great. And just as I'm going to, no, the gazelles. You've got to go for the gazelles. What are you doing? Get up, get up, get up. Go to the gazelles. So, okay, fine. I jump up, and I decide I'm going to go see these stupid gazelles. I get my shoes on them, fill up a canteen, and I hide my passport in the underwear and all the things you do when you leave a hotel room. You know, and it's getting late, and I'm sort of just jogging along through Jerusalem now. It's getting lighter and lighter. And I see a taxi stand. Oh, great. I'll take a taxi. That's great. So I show them on my map where I want to go. I tell them about the gazelles. They have no idea what I'm talking about whatsoever. I'm just some strange lunatic. I just give them some money. go, look, take me in this direction, okay? So they do, and they drop me off at the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. They just dump me off. And I don't know if you can imagine this. It's like really stupid. Like, don't abandon me here where the most police in all of Jerusalem are going to be around the Knesset. Like, don't just abandon me here. But I get sort of the, get thrown out of the taxi here. You crazy American. You want to be over here. You're over here. So I'm looking around. I think, well, it's got to be that way. So I start jogging again. Of course, it's getting later and later. Time's burning up. I want to be down there by dawn. And dawn's coming and going. And I'm jogging through these different neighborhoods. Jerusalem, it turns out, and I didn't even really thought about this, is way hilly. It's like downtown San Francisco hilly. It's just up and down, up and down, up and down. It's getting later and later, and I just can't go fast enough, and I'm just dying. <gasps> Shit, you know, and I'm thinking, this is so stupid. And what I didn't know is that the hotel clerk had told me the wrong place to go. She told me Arroyo A, and I really wanted to be at Arroyo B, and I didn't even know that yet. So finally, I've seen way up ahead, oh, this, this might be the little gully I want. You know, I'm trying to match the description here. I see there's a gate, but the, but the lock is not latched, so I go through the gate. And it's a quarry where they cut the stone, and there's also a wholesale greenhouse where they sell plants to construction things. And there's no one around. It's, it's early in the morning. But I'm thinking, you know, this is the classic place to find a guard dog. You know, they're going to have just guards protecting their thing. This is really stupid. And plus, if there are dogs, there won't be any gazelles. But then I see, you know, this, this hill, and this, it, might, it might work out. There's a lot of scrubby grass. There's a dirt road. There's a place where trucks dump gravel. It could be almost kind of wild. Nobody's around at all. And then I flush up a bunch of partridges, these quail of Israel. I think, well, that's pretty good. They're wild. Other wild birds are turning up. And I'm jogging along now through the bushes, and I expect some guard to come out and hassle me. And there's only signs in Hebrew, not in English, but you can just tell they say, no damn trespassing gringo, or we'll shoot you dead and spit on your grave. You just know what those signs are saying. Like, well, I'll just pretend I don't see any of those signs. Whatever. So I'm going along, trying to find the gazelles. It's getting scrubbier and scrubbier. I'm scrambling up and down these weedy berms, dropping down into the bushes and going back out. And way up high are these apartments in a highway, and I'm getting deeper into this valley. It's very shrubby and prickly and overgrown, very weedy. I'm brush whacking through, and it just feels not quite right. It seems like too small of a size overall for the gazelles to feed in. And I don't find any gazelle poop. That's always a sign that you know you're not in the right area where there's no poop on the trail. But I come to a fence. I think, okay, the fence is part of my directions. This is pretty good. You know, I got a fence. I'm going to crawl under the fence. That's what I was supposed to do. So I take off my pack, and I'm wiggling through the fence, and I go over. The problem is I'm wearing 
well, it costs a billion clothes. When I go through checkpoints because the police don't like me, I always try to have a clean shirt, nice shoes. I have my wedding ring. I've got my hair combed. I always try to be nice. And where I am on this hike is I've got my regular nice clothes. I don't have any field clothes. I don't have hiking boots. I don't have heavy boots. And so I'm thinking, this is terrible. I'm getting all dirty and messed up, and this is going to be, you know, this is going to be terrible. But I keep going forward, away from the hotel, away from the town, into this scrubby area, and I'm not sure where it's going to go to. I jump down into a 10-foot ditch, and I'm thinking, man, I hope this goes somewhere because I can't climb back out of this. I get all the way to the end of the valley, and nothing. There's no antelope. There's just brush like crazy. So now I have to rock climb up out of the valley to get back up to the highway, and I do that, and I've got about a thousand prickers in me. I've got prickers in my underwear, prickers in my socks, I've got my hands are bleeding. And you think of one of the plants in Israel is called crown of thorns. The idea that I'm really re you know, re following in the steps of Jesus is not a loss on my irony here. So I finally get up out of the gully, and I haven't seen anything, and I'm just a total mess, and I take off all my socks, all my shoes, my boots, I'm just trying to get all the prickers out, and I'm sitting in this nice little city park in a nice urban neighborhood, and I look like a homeless person, I look worse than a homeless person. And then as I'm getting myself cleaned up and drinking my water, wishing I had anything at all to eat, I'm just starving, I look way off in the distance and I see a little sign, a highway. Maybe they'll tell me where I am. I've got a hiking map here. What does this sign say? And I use my $2,000 Zeiss binoculars to read the sign. And I can just make it out. It's way in the distance and it says, Valley of the Gazelles, turn right here. English and Hebrew. Valley of the Gazelles, turn right here. And I'm looking, I'm like, oh shit, it's almost too late. And I jam my feet into my pricker-filled socks. And you don't know me, but I hate that. There's nothing I hate is putting on dirty socks that have little prickery things in them. This just bugs me. It drives me crazy. So I drink some water. I throw my gear back on. I go off running as fast as I can, running through the red lights at the end, just not stopping for the cars, like just going through the red lights. So... She had sent me to the wrong place, but this is the right place, clearly. There's even a big sign about, you know, welcome to the gazelle place. And there are hoopos. This is, this is like, I'm so happy, like, oh, this is a sign from the heaven. The hoopos are starting to turn up. I must be at the right valley this time, you know, right here. There's people jogging, people going to work. It's, it's, it's a strange discontinuity of, like, are there any gazelles here? Or what's going on? The bird calls are dying down. It's getting a little bit late in the morning now. But, you know, the thing is, you won't see them unless you try. So I'm guessing I've got about 200 hectares now to try this new area, uh, bigger than the Santa Monica campus, and the grass is taller than a gazelle at this point. So here's the story. Uh, Winnie Weedy Weeki, I came, I saw, I saw them. This is fabulous. I finally saw three gazelles, the entire Israeli population. There were three. I learned about this later. I do the little happy dance, and I study them, and I go bird watching, and, and that's, you know, uh, that was that day. So I get a taxi, and they take me back to a place where they were catching birds where I could ask the nature people about the Nubian ibex. So that was my next day. I was going to go down to the Dead Sea, see the Nubian ibex. So I say thank you to, the, to, the, to Shiva, to Jesus, all the people, to Buddha, all these people that give us our things. And I later learned that that little scrubby valley with the three gazelles is going to be made into a nature preserve, and they are going to introduce some more bi um, boy and girl gazelles and try to get them up to be ten gazelles is kind of the Israeli plan on that. But it doesn't matter because I have them on my animal list. They all could die, but I've got them on my list right now. So that's my diary story about looking for the gazelles in Israel. And we have just a little bit of time now to go to, to Q&A. It's 12.18. So what would you like to know about getting a book published? Transferring to UCLA, I can't help you there. Get GPA, 3.8 GPA. So questions? Yeah, not those two, yes. That's a great question. So the question was, you know, I've been to all these places. I've been to 49 countries so far and, and have a few more on my list for next summer. 
what, what do I provide? You know, what's the greatest inspiration? And I have to say, inspiration is really within us. This is what Blake taught us, what the great romantics taught us. So there are really amazing places just here in Santa Monica, just here in Los Angeles. It's more a matter of being open to the experience rather than it is where you have gone. I will say I'm partial to London and you know Iceland. These kind of you know it's hard not to like Iceland. But you don't need to spend all that money to go somewhere. You can just get it from here around you. And just my, my very, very small example on that, I knew I was coming down here, and of course the 405 is the 405. I'm not ignorant about how the traffic works. So I came down early, and I went and had you know, breakfast at the beach, just because why not? I, coming from the desert, it would be really shameful of me not to spend a little bit of time just thinking about the ocean and kind of the habitat a little bit here. And I had a fabulous morning. hope to go to the Getty Villa this afternoon while I'm down here on PCH. Why not? So inspiration is all around us. But if you had to pick one place, I'd send you to London, if, if you're just asking me. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. Hurry, please. I went to Glendale College. I was a history major. Only I learned an unfortunate truth. I actually had to read the book to pass the test in history. And I did that didn't suit me at all. So I switched over to English where I could just sort of bullshit my way through. And you know, if you haven't read it, you can kind of guess at it and sometimes do okay. It was a wonderful major for me. I loved it. Uh, but I will say that it is true you should be reading everything. And that is true for any major at all. That's whatever the professor assigns, great, do that, of course. But you want to expand your your circle out a little bit. And Walt Whitman's one of those people who actually famously is hard to get into for some people. Uh, Galway Canal, Ezra Pound, people who famously took into their 30s before they could really appreciate him. I think I appreciate Emily Dickinson now a lot more now that I'm teaching her and I have to spend time with her every semester and she's starting to really work for me. Jane Austen, I gotta confess, I don't get the Jane Austen thing. I know it's a failing of myself. It's like maybe it's a chick thing. Like, is this, I'm not enough of a feminine side to get it, but it baffles me why we care about Mr. Darcy and the 10,000 pounds a year, you know? Like, just get over it, honey. Well, it's a socioeconomic thing. I, pre I appreciate all that. Anyway, uh, really, we should read Whitman. If you don't like him, that means you need to read him twice as much because there's something about him that isn't working for you that probably is. Anyone like Whitman or Dickinson that everybody talks about is worth knowing. And if your initial response is, ooh, this is stupid, it, the fault's probably within you. Uh, I do try to read every day. I try to write every day also so that my idea is, let this stuff keep coming in. You'll use it some way or another. So I hope that touched on your question a little bit and on your question a little bit. Another question, please. Yes, please. So the question was, when do writers start and when did I start? What age? And yes, I'm like everybody else. I wrote the most dreadful song lyrics in high school, you know, just, just absolute Trekly stuff. And, you know, and I thought I was so anguished. You know, I actually saw some of my high school journals, and they're so embarrassing, I can't even look at them. I haven't thrown them away yet, but I keep thinking, you know, I was really brave. I'd read through them cover to cover and then burn them so that my own kids can't see what a schmuck I was back then. But of course, language comes to us lots of different ways. And even if you start writing a little bit later in life, that, what's the harm in that? The idea, as long as you're trying to express yourself through whatever art form you're going to be using, whether it's language or dance or painting or whatever it is, give it a shot. Yes, please. Thank you. The question was how long I've been journaling. Was I taught in school? And I think in my college English class, we did have to keep a journal or a diary that was turned into the instructor, which seems to me completely counterintuitive. If someone else is going to read it, then that takes away some of the privacy and some of the joy of it. 
And there are certainly times when I let it go and I've regretted it where I wish I had a piece of language or a piece of information from that section of my life. But I've tried to be a little more disciplined about it. I'm not kidding when I say, you know, if I get two ideas a day, I'm a happy boy. And so I need to capture those because I can promise you when you get home at the end of the day, it's gone like steam on the sidewalk. You know, it just evaporates right away. And obviously, I don't do this necessarily all the time, but I might bring this to work. I, I, when I joke about meetings, of course, meetings have their purpose, but it's also true. I'm at meetings that they don't really need me. They just need a head count, and so I can just sit in the back and kind of get caught up in my life. And I didn't show them, but I do have little um, pocket diaries that I keep around with me. So I, you know, if you go to any of the, you go to Barnes & Noble or you go to any of the art supply stores, you can get these little small, flappy little things. I like the blank pages ones, but the idea is that wherever I go, I've got something with me. This has got great rounded corners. I got this at uh, the gift shop at the Music Center downtown at, at the Walt Disney Concert Hall. I like the rounded edges. Just so I can grab stuff, glue stuff. And it's fun. It accumulates over time. And certainly if I run out of a voice or run out of steam, I would hope they've got enough in here to get me relaunched again. It's like a little reserve fuel tank, certainly. Oh, we're going to do one more question. Yes, please, sir. And I had the T-shirt, too. Uh, yeah, so the question was, what's the pleasure of something like Weekly World News? I just bought the, uh, I, it was probably the Inquirer I bought last weekend. You know, I'm not going to read these things every day. They get to be a little monotonous. But the way in which it expresses language is so delicious. X does Y, and there's sort of a metaphoric association that this person harmed this other person. And it's so middle school. It reminds me of what middle school must have been like. It's so far back, it's hard for me to remember junior high that vividly. But I just have to read about the movie stars having their little divorce fights, and it really puts me back in there. So I think if we just enjoy the spirit of it, the verbs of it, the metaphors of it, uh, it's a great way to access a different kind of language. Emily Dickinson is great, but there's no reason not to read The Inquirer also. So says, says this me. I'll close with one poem, or do you want to? Yeah. This is called uh, my, poem, my Poems Are Like My Children, and uh, many of you look too young to have children yet, uh, so I'm hoping you'll remember this when you get to have teenagers of your own. And I have read this with one of my kids in the room, and she put up with it. Um, it's meant with love and respect to both poetry and children. It's called My Poems Are Like My Children, and it'll be our closing text. My poems are like my children. They have big feet. They talk too loud. They need to be taken to the hospital a lot. My poems are like my children. Everybody tells me how good they look. Sometimes, late at night, I love my poems more than I ever thought possible. Mostly, though, my poems are the kind of poems that always seem to be dressed up for Halloween, except it's New Year's or Christmas Eve. I'm suspicious of my poems' friends. My poems smoke, smoke marbles and think I don't know. My poems drive nicer cars than I do. My poems get in a lot of wrecks. My poems, poems do not like the kind of music that I like, which is, I want to point out, good music. I don't like that crap they listen to. If I become vegetarian, my poems become vegan. If I start going to church again, something quiet and Unitarian, my poems join a cult involving chicken and bodily fluids. My poems can't remember my birthday, and it comes on the same damn day every year. My poems make promises we all know they will not keep. My poems cannot separate the darks from the lights in a load of wash. And usually if I ask my poems to do something, they forget or do the opposite. Sometimes I hate my poems for not being better poems. Hey! You know, I don't need you. I want to tell my poems. I was doing fine just before you guys came along. You know what? That's it. No more poetry. 
I'm changing my phone number. I'm going to write novels. Regency bodice ripper Harlequin novels with lurid covers and lots and lots of heaving bosoms and tight breeches. I'm going to make Fifty Shades of Grey look like Fifty Shades of Beige, baby. Let the royalties pour in because I am done with being done with you. I repudiate everything having to do with you. I unmake all of you. There, that's it. I said it. I hate you, you terrible, miserable, rotten excuses of poems. Everybody has better poems than I do. Oh, man, that's not a nice thing to say. Now I feel bad. You know, because really, maybe they're doing the best they can, my poems. I mean, after all, look at me. What did I expect? I should never have tried in the first place. Look at a mess my poems are, and it's all my fault. The apple never falls far from the tree, it's true. Of course, you know what they say. If you don't want poems, don't drink a lot on Friday nights. Drinking is the number one cause of unwanted poetry. Two of my poems are rebound poems, but I try not to let them know that. One of my poems did not come all night. <laughs> One of my poems did not come home all night. Only I was asleep, I didn't even notice. I feel bad about that, but only a little. After all, that's normal. They need to go out, meet other poems, become the poems they want to be, not just try to be what my definition of poetry is. Who wouldn't feel bad if their poems still live with them 40 years later? And if I come home unexpectedly, find them trying on my wedding ring, walking around with my best Italian loafers, putting my head on and taking it off fast just to hear the sucking sound the rubber makes, okay, that's normal. I tell myself, one day, one day very soon, I'm going to line up all my poems on the balcony like the Von Trapp children in Sound of Music, shortest to tallest. Line them up side by side, have them face away from the apartment, stand up on the railing, spread their arms like wings, and one by one, I will gently send them off with a kiss and a deep breath of air like a warm, moist wind. Send them off to sail over the roofs of Santa Monica, one by one by one, all of my poems gone out into the world forever. Thank you. What I have to say is, thank you, Charles Hood. Uh, that's why we need a poet in the neighborhood, in the college, in the classroom, and in our own heads. Thank you. Thank you for coming, and see you next semester.